Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Wednesday, September 14th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 54. This episode is brought to you by Learn Body Literacy and hashtag FamTaughtMe, my fertility awareness education initiative. I'm excited to share with you my two new books, The Body Literacy Visual Reader and The Body Literacy Coloring Book. The Body Literacy Coloring Book and Visual Reader are an 82-page, 8-by-10-inch coloring book and visual reader with full-page illustrations depicting reproductive anatomy, the menstrual cycle, hormones, sexual response, reproduction, fertility awareness, and more. The accompanying visual reader displays the same information in color. It features over 50 hand-drawn illustrations, and there are five sections, including anatomy, the menstrual cycle, fertility awareness, reproduction, and menstrual care. There's a 200-plus word anatomical glossary. There are two interactive exercises, and I've gone through and updated and created accurate anatomical drawings, including intersex anatomy, clitoral and sexual glands, and gender-neutral language and design is used throughout. Also, another feature of the Body Literacy Coloring Book and Visual Reader is Creative Commons licensing, where I am allowing other folks in the community to use the images and reproduce the images as needed in their materials. So if you haven't yet, please head over to my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and check out the coloring book and visual reader. I'm so excited to be sharing these with you. Now let's get into today's episode, which is about premenstrual syndrome and premenstrual dysphoric disorder or PMS and PMDD. Now, PMS or premenstrual syndrome is a common recurrent condition affecting those who experience a menstrual cycle. And it's most often categorized by psychological and physical symptoms that occur during the luteal or post-ovulatory phase of the cycle. Those with more severe symptoms are classified as having a related condition called PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, a type of depressive disorder categorized by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Now, 75% of people who menstruate are affected by some kind of premenstrual symptom during their menstrual life. That includes physical and mental health effects, with around 8% of them experiencing severe pain and disruption. Now, 3-8% to of people who menstruate are diagnosed with PMDD, which is a condition focused mainly on mental health effects experienced in the second half of the cycle or the luteal phase leading up to menstruation with the physical effects being secondary. So those who experience PMDD have a lower quality of life and functioning overall. But because there's a lot of confusion, I wanted to go over what is the difference between PMS and PMDD. So how do we determine what is what? And PMDD symptoms are considered severe and they last for seven to 14 days before menstruation. PMDD causes full episodes of uncontrollable emotion that damages relationships at work, home, and otherwise. PMDD causes those suffering from it to have to rearrange their lives to accommodate their condition. And PMDD can manifest itself in extreme anxiety and suicidal thoughts. 
And lastly, PMDD is focused on mental health changes, whereas PMS is an all-encompassing condition of physical and mental changes that occur before menstruation. Let's also clear up one more thing, which is that contraceptive side effects are not PMS or PMDD. So the progestins that are used in the birth control pill or IUD or otherwise implants, all kinds of things, are not the same as the progesterone that your body is making, that your ovaries make after ovulation. So in fact, progestins have many opposite effects to homemade progesterone and are linked to anxiety and depression, whereas body-made progesterone is linked with calm and happiness. So if you experience mood symptoms while using birth control, first you need to quit the birth control for at least three months and then get an assessment before uh, really going to get your PMS, PMDD assessment because we need to understand how much birth control was a factor in the depression. Unfortunately, one of the common conventional treatments for PMDD is to shut down ovulation with the argument that shutting down the cycle will stop the fluctuation of hormones and therefore will cure the condition. Um, But when you shut down ovulation and progesterone altogether with hormonal birth control, uh, there really isn't any evidence that it's useful for PMDD, especially as we're about to get into what the symptoms of PMDD are and what the causes are. So we'll see a little bit later on why that doesn't make very much sense. So the PMDD diagnostic criteria is outlined in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. And in it, PMDD is considered a depressive disorder, not otherwise specified, emphasizing emotional and cognitive behavioral symptoms. The criteria states that at least five of 11 symptoms must be present for a diagnosis. Symptoms should be limited to the post-ovulatory or luteal phase. Symptoms should not amplify pre-existing depression, anxiety, or personality disorder, and symptoms should subside during the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle. And lastly, these symptoms must present for consecutive, at least two consecutive menstrual cycles. So the symptoms include markedly depressed mood, including feelings of hopelessness or self-depreciating thoughts, marked anxiety, tension, feelings of being keyed up or on edge, Effective liability, like feeling suddenly sad or tearful, or increased sensitivity to rejection. Persistent and marked anger or irritability, or increased interpersonal conflict. Decreased interest in usual activities like work, school, friends, and hobbies. Subjective sense of difficulty and concentration. Lethargy, fatigue, or a marked lack of energy. Changes in appetite, like overeating or specific food cravings, hypersomnia or insomnia, a subjective sense of being overwhelmed or out of control, or other physical symptoms such as breast tenderness or swelling, headaches, joint or muscle pain, a sensation of bloating or weight gain. And other considerations include when the disturbance interferes with work, school, relationships, or social activities, and again, the disturbance can't be part of symptoms of another disorder that the person has. So we must then ask what causes PMDD, and the evidence around PMDD is not conclusive, and we'll get into that in just a moment. 
But there are a few things that we should know about premenstrual mood conditions overall, and that will kind of inform the rest of the discussion. The first thing to note is that premenstrual mood symptoms are the result of high histamine or mast cell activation. Mast cells are a type of immune cell that release prostaglandins, inflammatory cytokines, and histamines. Mast cell activation and the subsequent release of histamines cause symptoms that overlap with PMS, including irritability, insomnia, breast tenderness, and migraines. There are other symptoms of high histamine, including skin issues like hives, nasal congestion, low blood pressure, joint pain, fluid retention, ear ringing, nausea and other digestive issues, brain fog, and more. Estrogen has two major peaks in the menstrual cycle. Once occurs before ovulation and once during the luteal phase. Estrogen stimulates mast cells, which release histamine and stop the DAO enzymes from clearing histamine. So histamine also stimulates the ovaries to make more estrogen. This results in a feedback loop. Progesterone, on the other hand, reduces histamine. So we can infer here that there is a link between healthy estrogen metabolism, because our body needs to make estrogen and use it, but estrogen metabolism means that when that estrogen is done being used, it moves out of the body efficiently. It doesn't get stuck in the body, keep recirculating. So there is a link between healthy estrogen metabolism and proper progesterone levels in the luteal phase helping with the reduction of PMS symptoms just through this uh, lowering of histamine. Now, histamine is not the only factor in PMDD, but it should be addressed. If you notice that these symptoms are ringing true for you, you should definitely address histamine and mast cell activation. Secondly, premenstrual mood symptoms are the result of neurosteroid change sensitivity. What that means is an altered sensitivity of GABA receptors in your brain to allopregnenolone. And allopregnenolone is the metabolite that's made out of the progesterone that you make after ovulation. So this means that those who suffer from PMDD have more sensitivity to the changes of progesterone that just normally occur in the luteal phase. For some their menstrual charts, as we read progesterone in fertility awareness charting, those charts are going to read as typical. And there aren't necessarily issues with the hormones, estrogen and progesterone. So the chart will look normal on paper. This altered sensitivity of those GABA receptors in the brain is considered a key physiological driver of PMDD symptoms and the behavioral effects that come from them. So typically progesterone, as I've noted many times on this podcast, it has a positive effect on mood. Its metabolite, what's made from it, allopregnenolone, calms the GABA receptors in the brain. So for some reason with PMDD, the researchers believe that that allopregnenolone in its normal levels is producing these intense mood symptoms, but we aren't totally sure. Next, we need to look at higher than normal levels of the hormone prolactin. Prolactin is made in the pituitary gland and it causes the breast to grow and make milk during pregnancy and after birth. 
Levels are normally low for non-pregnant people. Prolactin is also androgenic because it increases the adrenal-based androgen called DHEAS. And you can also be tested for levels of DHEAS if you are curious. Now, high prolactin has been linked to several different kinds of physical and mental premenstrual mood symptoms. And lastly, we look at mineral deficiencies. So mineral deficiencies in magnesium, zinc, and B vitamins, particularly B6, can cause severe menstrual mood issues. This is because these minerals are integral to helping synthesize hormones, manufacture brain neurotransmitters like GABA, dopamine, and serotonin, lower prolactin, promote inflammatory compounds, and these minerals also help you metabolize estrogen properly and lower histamine levels. So obviously it's a factor in, you know, in here if someone is severely deficient in particular minerals that this could be having downstream effects on their mood. Now we must get into the timeline and history of PMDD diagnosis and the discussion around it. So the first time that the diagnostic category was discussed was back in 1987, and it was called late luteal phase dysphoric disorder. It was included in the appendix with calls for further research in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, third revised edition. In 1998, the FDA met privately with Eli Lilly because their most famous antidepressant, Prozac or fluoxetine, was about to expire, and the company had funded a large clinical trial using Prozac in 1995 that was conducted by Canadian academics and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And Eli Lilly determined, independent of the American Psychiatric Association, that PMDD was a distinct clinical disorder and that SSRIs like Prozac would be effective treatments. And during a discussion about the inclusion of PMDD in the next DSM edition, Sally Severino, a psychiatrist, had argued that the diagnosis pathologized the normal fluctuations of the menstrual cycle and that the syndrome was cultural in origin and not biological, based on its prevalence in the United States over other places in the world. Jean Endicott, chair of the committee and a psychiatrist as well, argued that it would have been studied if men were afflicted with the condition and that women were suffering and should be diagnosed and treated. Paula Kaplan, a psychologist who served on the committee for the dsm 4 also believed that the condition was harmful and that it leads the patient to believe that they are mentally ill and that it could also cause institutional harm, such as affecting their job prospects or affecting them in child custody cases. So she questioned why, if there was evidence that simple treatments, something as simple as calcium supplementation, could possibly treat the condition, why did the committee give no attention to alternative treatments besides these SSRIs? Nada Stotland, who was the 135th president of the American Psychiatric Association, expressed concern that those with PMDD have more severe conditions like major depressive disorder and that they may be facing extraordinarily difficult circumstances like domestic abuse, which means that they need just more resources than what the gynecologist or a pill could be offering them. So, quote, for the FDA to participate in this behind closed doors is very troubling. It had a direct outcome on 
Eli Lilly's financial bottom line, said Michael Carome, MD, Director of Public Citizen, a health research group that critiques the FDA and pharmaceutical industry. And Alan Francis, MD, chairman of an APA panel in 1994 that had rejected the condition, said he was, quote, puzzled and that the condition, quote, wasn't ready for prime time, noting that it was, quote, absolutely absurd for the FDA in secret meetings with drug companies to make a decision that would be contrary to what had been decided. Quote, the pharma industry went out trying to promote the condition so that more women self-presented with this disorder and consequently put pressure on doctors to prescribe medications for them, said Sadicha Sahu, MD, a psychiatrist at Ipswich Hospital in Brisbane, Australia, who wrote a paper about disease-mongering in psychiatry, which included PMDD. In the year 2000, the FDA approved four different drugs to treat PMDD, but the condition did not yet exist in the DSM. Eli Lilly changed the capsule color from green and yellow to pink and purple, and they rebranded it Seraphim. Seraphim was FDA-approved in 2002, and in the years immediately after, Zoloft, Paxil, and the birth control pill Yaz all won approvals for treating PMDD. They were also allowed to create treatment guidelines to help doctors decide how to treat PMDD before the condition was officially recognized as a psychiatric disorder. Treatment guidelines should be written by medical societies or other groups, but were instead issued by a small group of researchers who were paid by GlaxoSmithKline, the maker of Paxil, in 2006. The guidelines proclaimed antidepressants, quote, the treatment of choice for PMDD. It was also uncovered that Mir Steiner, MD, PhD, was one of the first researchers who was present for those FDA private meetings with Eli Lilly working as a consultant for several drug companies, including Eli Lilly, Pfizer, and GlaxoSmithKline. He later went on to develop the premenstrual symptom screening tool, which was then used to determine that at least 30% of women experienced PMS or PMDD. In 2008, PMDD was debated again before the publication of the DSM-5. PMDD became a distinct psychiatric condition in 2013 when the panel of the APA decided to move it from the appendix to the main text as a formal category. However, 70% of the panel had direct ties to drug companies. By 2013, the demand had grown because of the earlier outlined pharmaceutical-sponsored marketing to both consumers and doctors. They were even allowed television commercials, such as one ad that shows an angry woman fighting over a shopping cart at the grocery store with the text, think again, it could be PMDD. A number of independent experts questioned this and ran their own limited studies, such as Sarah Gerlhardt, PhD, who ran a study in Illinois and Missouri and found that only 1.3% of premenopausal people have PMDD. So around 1 million people in the USA, not the 8% or 6 million that is officially reported. Quote, we did become convinced that some women had PMDD, Girlhurt said, but we could also see that it had the potential to harm women if it became a quick and dirty diagnosis. In the text, Premenstrual Syndrome and the Myth of the Irrational Female, Sally King writes, Quote, over the past 30 years, clinical descriptions of PMS have remained predominantly psychological in focus, especially since the inclusion of premenstrual disorders in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM. 
first in the form of late luteal phase dysphoric disorder in 1987, and later its replacement premenstrual dysphoric disorder since 1994. Even reputable clinical sources sometimes refer to PMDD as, quote, severe PMS, implying that PMS is simply a less severe form of mental health disorder. In comparison, thyroid conditions, which are also hormonal in origin and commonly cause severe mood changes, are not listed in the DSM, end quote. After PMDD became an accepted condition, in 2014, a review in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry was published that examined the six main arguments against inclusion of PMDD as its own separate and distinct condition. Thinking that the PMDD label will harm women in various ways. So the arguments were that the PMDD label will harm them domestically, legally, politically, and economically, that there is no equivalent hormone-based medical label for men, that the research on PMDD is faulty, that it's a culture-bound condition, uh, that it's due to situational rather than biological factors, and that PMDD was fabricated by pharmaceutical companies for financial gain. And what they found was that there was no evidence of harm to women, uh, economically, politically, legally, and otherwise from the diagnosis, that there was no evidence of hormone-driven disorder that had been discovered in men despite looking for it, that the research base has matured and many more reputable studies have been performed, that several cases of PMDD have been reported or identified, and that a small minority of women do have the condition and even though there has been financial conflicts of interest, it's not so much so that the research is unusable. So the review basically concluded that women have historically been undertreated and told that they were making their symptoms up and that the formal diagnostic criteria should remain to spur more funding, research, diagnosis, and treatment for women with PMDD. To finish up this section, I wanted to return to Sally King, who wrote in the Palgrave Handbook for Critical Menstruation Studies that ever since premenstrual symptoms were first formally described in 1931, those most prominently cited in diagnostic criteria have been mood-based. But why is the question, especially because the data may tell us something very different? Large population studies have shown that they are not necessarily the most common experience uniquely determining nor most disruptive of menstrual changes. And Sally King goes on to argue that what she refers to as the myth of the irrational female, so the historically sexist idea that women are pathologically emotional and less rational due specifically to the reproductive biology, is the reason for this imbalanced interest in mood symptoms over the physical ones related to menstruation. In fact, the most common menstrual cycle-related symptom is menstrual pain, meaning physical pain in the pelvis and elsewhere in the body. Yet it's not typically included in the diagnostic criteria for any research about PMS or PMDD. So obviously one can understand that painful menstruation will have an effect on your mood and fatigue and other mental symptoms in addition to it just being straight up physical pain. So all five of the existing Cochrane systematic reviews of PMS almost universally selected participants with mood-based criteria. So they underrepresented large population groups with physical symptoms. 
potentially, you know, linking physical symptoms and mental symptoms together. Uh, but that can't happen if you don't select for, for it. So making matters more complicated is that PMS as a condition is susceptible to its cultural associations, meaning people's perspective of what PMS is and what it means to us culturally can change the way that people understand their own symptoms. And international studies report very different premenstrual changes and oftentimes negative mood is not even reported, suggesting that culture is indeed shaping how we talk about PMS and PMDD. And this is also called the priming effect, where a diagnostic tool meant to, you know, uncover uh, a condition instead ends up increasing the amount the condition is reported and which particularly which symptoms are noticed by the researchers. So it, it limits the scope. Um, and now I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the treatments of PMDD and their limitations. So we've talked about how the, historically this um, condition was actually created out of a drug company wanting to market something, right? So the conventional treatments for PMDD are really limited by that in terms of the imagination. So all of the antidepressants used to treat PMDD carry an FDA black box warning for increased risk of suicidal thinking. And the brand names are Seraphim, Zoloft, and Paxil. And they also have other serious side effects such as fatigue, low energy, and decreased interest in sex. SSRIs are often recommended because the idea is that they're going to be able to modulate the GABA receptors in the brain, which are the site where GABA and neurosteroids bind. So if you've never heard of GABA before, it stands for gamma immunobutrylic acid, which is an amino acid that functions as the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter for the central nervous system. With PMDD, they believe that the GABA receptors have trouble changing their configuration. They kind of have five subunits, and they fail to adapt to the normal fluctuations of allopregnenolone, which is the metabolite of progesterone. So we aren't sure how successful the strategy of SSRI-mediated GABA receptor modulation works. SSRIs also increase risk of osteoporosis, which should be informed before the patient makes a decision. Birth control is sometimes recommended to shut down the normal fluctuations of the menstrual cycle, but historically pills like Yaz were clearly documented as making PMDD symptoms worse. So remember that the progestions in contraceptives are not the same as what our body makes, progesterone, and are already linked with anxiety and depression in people who just don't have PMDD, you know, just in normal healthy folks that, that the pill has been tested on. So we also know that ovulation itself is important for long-term full-body health, especially of the brain, bones, and cardiovascular system because the menstrual cycle makes your hormones. And so the birth control pill was not designed to treat PMDD, so it should be really looked at with caution as a treatment for it, especially because it doesn't really fit with the, uh, the hormonal aspects of the condition, right? The hormones are generally normal or appear to be in their normal levels with PMDD. It's not necessarily a hormonal condition, like there's some imbalance of estrogen and progesterone necessarily. And in terms of the clinical diagnosis uh, and treatment, sometimes other treatments are recommended besides the SSRIs and birth control, including diet, 
and exercise and stress management. Um, sometimes more rarely B vitamins and magnesium as well. But we must use a framework of reproductive and birth justice to be able to implement evidence-based medicine when we're treating PMS and PMDD. So this means changing the way that PMS and PMDD are researched, how data is collected, and the money and other interests you know, that may be influencing those studies and treatments that are offered. Now I'd like to talk about some of the more autonomous treatments of PMDD and their limitations as well. So the most important thing to take away from this long discussion on the history of the condition is that there's been a clear disservice done to figuring out how to relieve menstrual pain and menstrual-related symptoms overall. Whether they're physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, or otherwise, it matters to get to the bottom of what is actually causing you to feel bad or that living your life with your menstrual cycle is really difficult. We need to examine what might be going on, but I'm confident that starting with the physical body will help you in your journey of figuring out what's going on with the mental and emotional parts of your being. For example, someone will come to me for breast pain and then they'll end up noticing that they're, you know, feeling an increased or improved mood from that treatment, even though that's not why we, we were discussing that. So let's start with some of the strategies to address PMDD. The first thing is to stabilize the GABA receptors. We do believe that that is an important aspect of this, as well as to stabilize the post-ovulatory progesterone levels and to lower prolactin. And so some strategies to do this is to supplement with magnesium glycinate, vitamin B6, or a methylated B-complex. Um, deficiencies in these essential vitamins and minerals are definitely an issue. Also might want to try evening primrose oil three times daily, which can reduce premenstrual symptoms and support normal hormonal functioning because they are rich in omega-6 fatty acids. Another treatment would be Vitex herb, which lowers prolactin levels, has a mild opiate effect that calms and stabilizes progesterone, as well as helps with other physical symptoms like breast pain and fluid retention. And if you want to learn more about Vitex, you can listen to the last episode, episode 53, which is an herb profile on Vitex agnus castus. Next, we can talk about iodine. Uh, which promotes healthy estrogen metabolism by down-regulating estrogen receptors and stabilizing estrogen-sensitive tissue. Uh, you should use 300 micrograms per day, but if you want to up your dosage or you have thyroid issues, it really needs to be paired with selenium, and you need to read about the risks of excess iodine. Definitely get your levels checked before playing with iodine uh, in any way. Next, you can work with body-identical progesterone, which is a solid treatment for the luteal phase. It helps you stabilize your progesterone levels. And progesterone is called oral micronized progesterone, which requires a doctor's prescription. But you can purchase progesterone cream, which is basically made naturally from wild yams, and that's available over the counter. You might want to uh, be careful with dosage for this as well because progesterone, is imp it's important to get the right amount. Too low or too high could be aggravating, so you need to keep notes about your usage. You know, if you use it as directed and you want to go up in dosage or down in dosage, really kind of follow how you're feeling with progesterone. 
And I know I started this with supplementation just to discuss each mineral specifically and whatnot, but I want to take a moment to underline this part, which is that I would really rather you buy whole food items that are rich in these compounds and minerals and vitamins and cook them or eat them regularly. So focus on foods rich in the above compounds like seafood, organ meats, egg yolks, grass-fed butter and seaweed, mushrooms, and leafy greens. And that's going to make supplementation less needed, which is overall a good strategy. And it's the best way to get bioavailable minerals in their proper balance and with their proper diversity. We've also found that tryptophan foods may also help as they're a precursor to serotonin and they often contain B vitamins such as salmon, poultry, beef, properly soaked and sprouted whole grains, and legumes. I also find that other herbal antidepressants can be very helpful as people are kind of coming out of PMD trying to address some of the underlying physical issues. And so in moments where people are having an episode or they need help in the immediate, I found that having herbal antidepressants on hand can be helpful. So the first one is St. John's wort, which is an antidepressant with antimicrobial nervine and astringent properties. It can definitely affect pharmaceutical drugs, so you need to look at St. John's Wort and uh, look at the contraindications, make sure you're not taking anything that could be affected by it. Next is Common Mugwort, which is a mild nervine, an antidepressant, an antispasmodic, and antibacterial herb. There's Rosemary, which is a nervine, antidepressant, antispasmodic. There's Lemon Balm a mild antidepressant, anti-anxiety, and trophorestorative, which means nutritive, restorative, or balancing herb. There's true lavender, which is an antidepressant, nervine, and is particularly associated with helping deal with grief or loss. And motherwort, which is a nervine, an antispasmodic, and good for menstrual balance. And lastly, valerian root for sleep. So make sure you read about all the drug interactions and contraindications for any herbs before you use them, but this is the, the general route I would go to have on hand, have by your bedside, or when you need to reach for it in the immediate. So my overarching thoughts here are that we want to nourish oneself with deep nutrition and healing foods while avoiding inflammatory foods, particularly foods that raise blood sugar and insulin and alcohol. Next, we want to reduce inflammation and mast cell activation, so that's histamine release, by avoiding high histamine foods, especially in the luteal phase. Take a look at any processed foods that you eat regularly that are in your house that contain emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners because they can mess with your gut and immune health as well. Next, we want to support progesterone levels with herbs like Vitex and Magnesium, uh, they also lower prolactin, which helps with progesterone levels. And we also want to encourage a healthy liver and gut microbiome because this supports estrogen metabolism. And we do that through utilizing herbs like milk thistle, burdock, and dandelion, as well as drinking hearty bone broths and warming foods in the luteal phase, especially in the morning, especially for breakfast if you can. And lastly, uh, the goal is to live as healthy as you possibly can prioritizing rest, joy, and good sleeping habits, which can also be reinforced by uh, supplementation with magnesium before bed or herbs that help with sleep like Chinese skullcap, valerian root, or chamomile. Now I'd like to talk about using fertility awareness to manage PMDD. 
So learning to chart your cycle with fertility awareness increases your skill of body literacy. And in turn, this helps you engage in cycle-based self-care that helps you understand and respond to the symptoms of PMDD and other menstrual issues you may be dealing with. Cutting the menstrual cycle into four main quadrants and tracking your hormones, estrogen, and progesterone with basal body temperature and cervical fluid observations can give you key insights to the root cause of your individual presentation of PMS or PMDD. Try focusing on each fertility sign with special care and assessing your chart after three months. Signs of estrogen issues in charts include no cervical fluid or very little wet fluid at all seen throughout the cycle, cervical fluid present every day of the cycle, so the opposite issue, menstrual bleeds that are scanty and are more like spotting than a real red blood, or the opposite, where menstrual bleeds are very heavy, dark, and with large clots, breast pain, fibroids, ovarian cysts, and endometrial hyperplasia are other conditions that are related to estrogen issues, which may be related to histamine issues, which could be related to prolactin issues. So it's kind of a nebula of of different issues related to estrogen that you can parse out through looking at your cervical fluid and looking at your menstrual blood. Now, signs of progesterone issues in charts are a bit different. We're looking instead at the temperatures for progesterone. So if we don't see a thermal shift, we don't see an ovulation, that would be a sign of progesterone issues. If we see weak or ambiguous thermal shifts, like the temperatures are having an issue climbing above their cover line that we we look for, that would be an issue. Um, temperatures that just kind of straddle the line, so they they rise but not very high, not very robust. Um, post-ovulatory phases that are short, so longer than 10 days would be normal. So if you're having post-ovulatory phases that are nine days or less, that would be a potential sign of progesterone issues, uh, as well as irritability and these other mood symptoms that are related to low progesterone. So your charts may also be useful for tracking your symptoms or watching your transformation over many cycles after you're like working on this issue and you begin supplementing. Definitely mark all of that in your charts as well so you can watch what affects you and how, and if there's a lag in the effects based on the looking, you know, retroactively at the charts. And some ideas for tracking other aspects include diet and food triggers, alcohol consumption, energy level, moods, bowel movements, and any other kind of chronic pain like migraines or depressive episodes. And so what I want to leave you with is that PMDD is a very serious condition, but it is indeed a rare condition. Only a small minority of people who menstruate are going to fit the criteria for PMDD, and PMDD may require medical support. The vast majority of people who menstruate can utilize the strategies that we've talked about here to treat their PMS successfully and to improve their experience of menstruation by reducing menstrual-related symptoms, especially physical ones, in just three to six months. PMDD should not be used to argue that the menstrual cycle is a form of illness or that all people who experience a menstrual cycle are diseased or inferior. Recognizing our culture of menstrual stigma and countering the myth of the irrational female is important to distinguishing the way PMS is described and managed today. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something about this condition and its history 
you know, I really think there needs to be more research done about menstrual conditions in general, whether they're physical or mental, but it's really important that it's done in a way that does not contribute to these long-standing false ideas about the body that menstruates. And that's very difficult to do considering the foundations of medicine being so and science being so steeped in uh, particular ideas about the female body, about black bodies, um, about any pathology, uh, about people that they didn't like, so or that they didn't find valuable. And so with menstrual issues, this is a major problem that comes up because the research is just so steeped in these earlier ideas. How can we possibly get out of them to be able to understand them in a new way? But I think that a, a big attempt is being made to understand with PMDD, at least, that um, it's a rare condition. Many people can actually clear their menstrual pain and whether that's physical or mental, it can indeed be addressed and with very simple fixes, but most people are not getting that information necessarily from the doctor. The doctor is more going down the path of here's what drugs we can use to treat this. And that's okay. And some people will choose that path. But um, I think the overarching thing that I learned from researching this episode was about how we can start with these, what we already do know with these simple fixes that we do have. And most people's bodies are going to respond to to them. How well they respond is another question, whether it's a mild response or a more dramatic response. But I can say through experience that working with several different people on premenstrual syndrome as well as premenstrual pain or menstrual pain, that there actually is a lot of room for people to get better. They just need to know what strategies to use and stick with those strategies for three to six months. And so I hope that this episode was able to help you. Uh, if you're suffering from PMDD, it is not your fault. And there's a lot that you can do. Um, and if you are feeling shirked off by your doctors or other practitioners, um, there's a lot of strategies in this episode that you can go back to and experiment with that won't require you to um, have to deal with the medical industrial complex further, and that may help you see a dramatic change in your quality of life. So I definitely encourage you to make small, actionable steps and to take it very slow. And you can always return to this episode and uh, kind of let it sink in a little bit more about some of the physical underlying connections um, and I just hope that, uh, this episode is able to help someone. Um, this is a huge problem that I see with, uh, just people not being able to get resources and support for this particular issue. And, um, a lot of times the discussion of hormones becomes an excuse to not look further into what's going on with someone uh, whether it's their physical body or otherwise their environment or, or just their whole person. And, and so that's really was my motivation for making this episode, just trying to, um, create, you know, a bridge for some of the gaps in knowledge that are out there about this very nebulous, uh, very confusing condition. So thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, please like, subscribe, and share it with someone who may need it. This episode is brought to you by Learn Body Literacy and hashtag fam taught me, my fertility awareness education initiative. I once again want to share with you my two latest books, The Body Literacy Coloring Book and The Body Literacy Visual Reader. The Body Literacy Coloring Book is an 82-page, 8-by-10-inch coloring book with full-page illustrations that depict reproductive anatomy, the menstrual cycle hormones, sexual response, reproduction, fertility awareness, and more, and the accompanying visual reader displays that same information in color. Are you ready to learn body literacy through the power of coloring? Go and grab your copy now. This concludes episode 54 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.